33. S is true magnanimity months is a noble fellow, and the lasting gratitude of the house is due to him and his heirs forever. Fashionable intelligence. It is expected that Mr. Smooks and family will pass the winter at Battersea, as the warmth of the climate is strongly recommended for the restoration of the health of Mrs. Smooks, who is in a state of such alarming delicacy as almost to threaten a realization of the fears of her best friends and the hopes of the black job master who usually serves the family. Mr. Snivens gave a large tea party, last week, at Greenwich, where the boiling water was supplied by the people of the house, the essentials having been brought by the visitors. Mr. Popkins has left his attic in the new cut, for a tour on the Brixton treadmill. K-32 left his official residence at the station house, for his beat in Leicester Square and repaired at once to a public house in the neighborhood, where he had an audience of several pickpockets. We are authorities to state, that there is no foundation whatever for the report that a certain well-known policeman is about to lead to the altar a certain unknown lady. The rumor originated in his having been seen leading her before the magistrate. Dick Wiggins transacted business yesterday in Cold Bath Fields, and picked the appointed quantity of oakum. Mr. Baron Nathan has left Margate for Cummington. We have not heard whether he was accompanied by the Baroness, the Honorable Miss Nathan, when we last heard of her, was dancing a hornpipe among the shillings worth of new laid eggs, at Tivoli, a few minutes after Sir Robert Peel left Privy Gardens, in a carriage and four, for Claremont, Sam Snoxell jumped up behind the Brighton stage, from which he descended, after having been whipped down, at Cunningham, important invention, the celebrated savant Sir Peter Lorry whose scientific labors to discover the cause of the variation of the weathercock on Bowchurch, had astonished the Lord Mayor and the Board of Aldermen, has lately turned his attention to the subject of railroads. The result of his profound cogitations has been highly satisfactory. He has produced a plan for a railway on an entirely new principle, which will combine cheapness and security in an extraordinary degree. We have been favored with a view of the inventor's plans, and we have no hesitation in saying that, if adopted, the most timid person may, with perfect safety, take the bell and the breeze. Our readers are informed that, despite the belligerent character of the correspondence between the fierce Fitzroy and the gentle shepherd, although it came to a slight blow, there is nothing to warrant an anticipation of their the fasting phenomenon. The Tories have engaged Bernard Cavanaugh, the Irish fasting phenomenon, to give lectures on his system of abstinence which they think might be beneficially introduced amongst the working classes of England. This is a truly Christian principle of government, for while the people fast, the ministers will not fail to pray. Tory boons, air, nor a Syriana, the Whigs they promised every day to cure the ills which did surround us, it should have been. No cure, no pay, for now we're worse than when they found us. The Tory clique at length are in, and vow that they will save the nation, so kindly give us to begin exchequer bills and ventilation. Oh, the artful Tories dear. Oh, the dear, the artful Tories they alone perceive. Tease clear, that taxes tend to England's glories. The Whigs declared cheap bread was good, to satisfy the people's cravings they tried to take the tax off would Lord knows what might be done with shavings. The Tories vow these schemes were wrong, and adverse to good legislation, therefore, propose so runs our song exchequer bills and ventilation. Oh, the artful Tories dear, oh, the dear and artful Tories, they alone perceive, tease clear, taxes tend to England's glories, the Whigs became the poor man's goat, mixed ashes in his cup of sorrow, nor thought the paupers, lot of woe, 
perchance might be their own due moral. The Torah said they were his friend, that they abhorred procrastination, so give till next July shall end exchequer bills and the nilation. Oh, the artful Torahs dear, oh, the dear and artful Torahs, they alone perceive, tease clear, taxes tend to England's glories, recreation for the public. Sir Robert Peel seems impressed with the necessity of providing the citizens of London with additional parks, where they may recreate themselves, and breathe the free air of heaven. But, strange as it may seem, the people cannot live on fresh air, and accompanied by some stomachic of a more substantial nature, yet they are forbidden to grumble at the diet, or, if they do, they are silenced according to the good old Tory plan of Colonel Sithorpe thinks he recollects having been Hannibal once long ago although he cannot account for his having been beaten in the Punic War. The light of all nations, the public are aware that this important national undertaking, which is now about to be commenced, is to be a prodigious cast-iron lighthouse on the Goodwin Sands. Peter Borthwick and our city are already candidates for the office of Universal Illuminators. Peter rests his claims chiefly on the brilliancy of his ideas, as exemplified in his plan for lighting the metropolis with bottled moonshine, while Sid proudly refers to our columns for imperishable evidences of the intensity of his wit. Conscious that these alone would entitle him to be called the light of all nations, we trust that Sir Robert Peel will exercise a sound discretion in bestowing this important situation. Highly as we esteem Peter's dazzling talents profoundly as we admire his bottled moonshine scheme we feel there is no man in the world more worthy of being elevated to the lantern than our refulgent friend Sithorpe. A short treatise of dramatic casualties. Very profitable to read. Let our treatise of dramatic casualties be that which treateth of the misfortunes contingent upon the profession of dramatic authors. Now, of unfortunate dramatic authors there be two grand kinds namely. They that be unfortunate before the production of their works, and they that be unfortunate after the production of their works, and first, among them that be unfortunate before the production of their works may be enumerated one, he that, having but one manuscript of his piece leaveth the same with the manager for inspection, and it falleth out that he seeth it no more, neither heareth thereof, two, he that having translated a piece from the French, and bestowed thereon much time, findeth himself forestalled, 3. He that, having written a pantomime, carrieth it in his pocket, and straight there cometh a dishonest person, who, taking the same, selleth it for waste paper. 4. He that presenteth his piece to all the theatres in succession, and lo, it ever returneth, accompanied with a polite note expressive of disapprobation or the like. 5. He whose piece is approved by the manager, but, nevertheless, the same produceth it not, for divers reasons which do vary at every interview. 6. He that communicateth the idea of a yet unwritten drama to a friend, who, being of a fair wit, and prompt withal, useth the same to his own ends and reapeth the harvest thereof. And secondly, of them that be unfortunate after the production of their works, there be some whose pieces are successful, and there be some whose pieces are not successful. And firstly, of unfortunate authors whose pieces are unsuccessful there be one, those who write a piece which faileth through its own demerits, which may be, as a, he that write the farce or comedy, and neglecteth to introduce jokes in the same, be he that write the farce or comedy, and introduceth bad jokes in the same, see, he that write the farce or comedy, and introduceth old jokes in the same, he that write the tragedy, and introduceth matter for merriment therein, e he that, in either tragedy, comedy, farce, or other entertainment, 
shocketh the propriety of the audience, or causeth a division in the same, by political allusions, to, he that write the piece which faileth, though not through its own demerits, which may be, as a, when the principal actor, not having the author's words by heart, and being of a suggestive wit and good assurance, substitute at others, which he deemeth sufficient, be when the principal actor, not having the author's words by heart, and being of a dull and heavy turn, and deaf withal, substitute at nothing, but standeth aghast, yearning for the voice of the prompter, see, when the scene-shifter ingeniously introduceth the forest into a bedchamber, or cometh the like incongruity, marvelous pleasant and mirthful to behold, but in no way conducive to success, do when pistols or other firearms do misfire, when red fire ignites not, or ignites the scenes, when a trapdoor refuseth to open, a rope to draw, and the like, be when the author entrust at his principal part to a new actor, and it falleth out that the same doth grievously offend the audience, who straight insist that he do quit the stage, whereby the ruin of the piece is consummated, f likewise there be misfortunes that arise from the audience, as, when at a momentous point of the plot there entereth one heated with liquor, and causeth a disturbance, or a woman with a huge bonnet becomes the subject of a discussion as to her right to wear the same, and impede the view of them that be behind, also when there cometh in a ruffian, or more, in a peacoat, who having been charged by an enemy to work the ruin of the peace, endeavoreth to do the same, by dint of hisses or other unseemly noises, all of which be highly pernicious. Secondly, of those unfortunate authors who have been successful, there be one, he whose peace, albeit successful, is withdrawn to make room for the Christmas pantomime, Easter piece, or other entertainment equally cherished by the manager, who thereupon groundeth the plea of non-payment, to, he who being a creditor of the manager, and the same being unable to meet his obligations, by an ingenious contrivance of the law becomes cleansed thereof, an operation which hath been conceitedly termed, whitewashing, 3, he that write the piece with a friend, and the same claimeth the entire authorship thereof and emolument therefrom, and there be divers other calamities which we have neither space nor time to enumerate, but which be all incentives to abstain from dramatic writing. Theardi ideas, Punch's Theatre, Jack Ketch, O.R., a leaf from Tree. Modern legislation is chiefly remarkable for its oppressive interference with the elegant amusements of the mob. Bartholomew Fair is abolished, bull baiting, cock pants, and duck hunts are put down by act of parliament, prize fighting by the new police even those morally healthful exhibitions, formerly afforded opposite the debtor's door of Newgate, for the sake of example that were attended by idlers in hundreds, and thieves in thousands are fast growing into disuse. The masses see no pleasure now, even the hanging matches are cut off, deeply compassionating the effects of so liberal an innovation, Mr. G. Elmer the author to, and Mr. R. Connor the proprietor of, Sadler's Wells Theatre, have produced an exhibition which in a great degree makes up for the infrequent performances at the Old Bailey. Those whose moral sensibilities are refined to the choking point who can relish stage strangulation in all its interesting varieties better than Shakespeare, are now provided with a rich treat. They need not wait for the recorder's black cap and a black Monday morning the Sadler's Wells people hang every night with great success, for, unless one goes early, there is as is the case wherever hanging takes place no standing room to be had for love or money. The play is simply the history of Jack Ketch, a gentleman who flourished at the beginning of the last century, and who, by industry and perseverance, attained to the rank of public executioner, 
an office he performed with such skill and effect that his successors have, as the bills inform us, inherited his sobriquet with his office. He is introduced to the audience as a roadmaker's apprentice, living in the immediate neighborhood of Execution Dock, and loving Barbara Allen, a young spinster residing at the Cottage of Content, upon the borders of Epping Forest, supporting herself by the produce of her wheel and the cultivation of her flower garden. He beguiles his time, while twisting the hemp, by spinning a tedious yarn about this well-to-do spinster, from which we infer Barbara's barbarity, and that he is crossed in love. The soliloquy is interrupted by an elderly man, who enters to remark that he has come out for a little relaxation after a hard morning's work, no wonder, for we soon learn that he is the jack catch of his day, and has, but an hour before, tucked up two brace of pirates, with this pleasing information, and a sharp dialogue on his favorite subject with the hero. He retires, here the interest begins, three or four footstamps are heard behind, Jack starts, ah, that noise, and see, and on comes the offer of the piece, his first appearance here these five years, he approaches the footlights he turns up his eyes he thumps his breast and goes through this exercise three or four times, before the audience understand that they are to applaud, they do so, and the play goes on as if nothing had happened. For this is an episode expressive of a first appearance these five years, Gypsy George or Mr. G. Helmer, whichever you please, having assured Jack Ketch that he is starving and in utter destitution, proceeds to give five shillings for a piece of rope, and walks away, after taking great pains to assure everybody that he is going to hang himself, before, however, he has had time to make the first coil of a hempen collar, Jack looks off and describes the stranger in the last agonies of strangulation, amidst the most deafening applause from the audience, whose disgust is indignantly expressed by silence when he exits to cut the man down. Their delight is only revived by the apparition of Gypsy George, pale and ghastly, with the rope round his neck, and the exclamation that he is done for. Barabbas, the hangman, who reappears with the rest, is upbraided by Jack for coolly looking on and letting the man hang himself. Without raising an alarm, Mr. B answers, that, it was no business of his, like Sir Robert Peel and the rest of the profession, it was evidently his maxim not to interfere, unless, regularly called him, the gypsy, so far from dying, recovers sufficiently to make to Jack some important disclosures, but of that mysterious kind peculiar to melodrama, by which nobody is the wiser, they, however, bear reference to Jack's deceased father, a clasp knife a certain Sir Gregory of the Gedge, and the four gentlemen so recently suspended at execution dock. The residence of Content and Barbara Allen is a scene, the minute correctness of which it would be wicked to doubt, when the bill so solemnly guarantee that it is copied from the best authorities. Barbara opens the door, makes a curtsy, produces a purse, and after saying she is going to pay her rent, Island by an ingenious contrivance of the saddler's well Shakespeare, confronted with her landlord. The Sir Gregory before mentioned, all stage landlords are villains, who prefer seduction to a rent, and the of the dash is no exception. The struggle, rescue, and duel, which follow, are got through in no time. The last would certainly have been fatal, had not the assailant's servant come on to announce that a gentleman wished to speak to him at his own residence. The lover who is of course the rescuer deems this a sufficient excuse to let off his antagonist without a scratch. Barbara rewards him with an embrace and a rose, just as another rival intrudes himself in the person of Mr. John Ketch. The altercation which now ensues is but slight, for Jack, instead of fighting, 
goes off to Fairlock Fair with another young lady, who seems to come upon the stage for no other purpose than to oblige him. At the fair we find Jack's spirits considerably damped by the prediction of a gypsy, that he will marry a hangman's daughter, but, after the jumping insects, which forms a part of the sports, he rescues Barbara from being once more assailed by her landlord. Thereupon another component of the festive scene our friend the hangman declares that she is his daughter. Horror, tableau, and end of act I after establishing a lapse of four years between the acts. The author takes high ground, we are presented with the summit of Primrose Hill, St. Paul's in the distance, and a gentleman with black clothes, and literary habits, reading in the foreground. This turns out to be, the Laird Lawson, Barbara's favored lover and benevolent duelist, though on the top of Copney Mount. He is suffering under a deep depression of spirits, for he has never seen Miss Ellen during four years. Come next Fairlock Fair. Having heard this, the audience island of course, quite prepared for that lady's appearance, and, sure enough, on she comes, accounting for her presence with great adroitness, having left the city to go to Holloway. She is taking a shortcut over Primrose Hill. The lovers go through the mode of recognition never departed from at minor theaters, with the most frantic energy and have nearly hugged themselves out of breath, when the executioner pop interrupts the blissful scene, without so much as saying how he got there, but, finishers, are mysterious beings, Barabbas denounces the laird, and when his consent is asked for the hand of Miss Barbara, tells the lover, he will see him hang first, the moon, a dark stage, and Jack catching the character of a footpad, now add to the romance of the drama, not to leave anything unexplained, the hero declares, that he has cut the walk of life he formerly trod in the road ditto, and has been induced to take to the road solely by fate, brandy and not salt, but Barbara, by some extraordinary accident, every character in the piece, with two exceptions, had occasion to tread the scene, Holloway and Heath near the village of Holloway, painted from the best authorities, just exactly in time to be robbed by Ketch, who shows himself the perfect master of his business, and a credit to his instructor, for Gypsy George rewards Jack for saving him from hanging, by showing his friend the shortest way to the gallows. In the following scene, the plot breaks out in a fresh place. The man with the dash and Gypsy George are together, going over some youthful reminiscences. It seems that once upon a time there were six pirates, for were those pendants from the Jibby Pap execution dock one hears so much about at the commencement, the fifth is the speaker, Gypsy George, and you, exclaims that person striking an attitude, and addressing Sir Gregory, make up the half-dozen, they all formerly did business in a ship called the, Morning Star, and whenever the ex-pirate number five is in pecuniary distress, he bawls out into the ear of side even pirate number six, the words, Morning Star, and a purse of hush money is forked out in a trice, in this manner Gypsy George accumulates, by the end of the piece, a large property, for six or eight purses, already filled for each occasion, thus pass into his pockets, the best authorities, furnish us, next, with an interior, that of, the mug, a chocolate house and tavern, where a new plot is hatched against the crown and dignity of the late respected George I, by a party of Shacobites, these consist of a half dozen of Hanoverian wigs, who enter, duly decorated with an equal number of hats of every variety of cock and cockade, the heroine seems to have engaged herself here as waitress, on purpose to meet her persecutor, Sir Gregory, and her late lover, Jack Ketch. What comes of this rencontre it is impossible to make out, for a general melee ensues, 
caused by a discovery of the plot, which is by no means a gunpowder plot, for although a file of soldiers present their arms for several minutes full at the conspirators, not a single musket goes off. Perhaps gunpowder was expensive in the reign of George I. Jack Ketch ends the act with a dream and apropos finale, for we caught several of our neighbors napping. The scene in which this vision takes place is the crowning result of the painter's researches amongst the best authorities, it being no less than a garret in Grub Street, in which the great Daniel Defoe composed his romance of Robinson Crusoe. A fishing party whose dullness is relieved by a suicide opens the last act, one of the anglers having finished a comic song which from its extreme gravity forms an appropriate dirge to the forthcoming Philo de Southeast goes off with his companion to leave the water clear for Barbara Allen, who enters, takes an affecting leave of her alert lover, and straightway drowns herself. Jack catches now, by a rapid change of scene, discovered in limbo, and condemned to death, why? We were too stupid to make out. The fatal cart very likely modeled after the best authorities next occupies the stage, drawn by a real horse, and filled with Sir Gregory Gash who it seems is going to be hanged and Jack Ketch not as a prisoner, but as an officer of the crown, for we are to suppose that Mr. Barabbas, having retired from the public scaffold to private life, has succeeded in favor of Jack Ketch, who was saved from the rope himself on condition of his using it upon the person of Sir Gregory and every succeeding criminal. All the characters come on with the cart, and a denouement evidently impends. The distracted lover demands of somebody to restore his mistress, which Gypsy George is really so polite as to do, for although the bills expressly inform us she has committed suicide, and we have actually seen her jump into the river Lee, yet there she is safe and sound, carefully preserved in an envelope formed partly by the Gypsy himself and partly by his cloak. She, of course, embraces her lover, and leaves Jack Ketch to embrace his profession with what appetite he may, all, in fact, ends happily, and Sir Gregory goes off to be hanged. This, then, is the state to which the founders of the Newgate School of Dramatic Literature, and the March of Intellect, had brought us, nothing short of actual hanging the most revolting and repulsive of all possible subjects to enter much less to dwell in any mind not actually savage must now be provided to meet the refined taste of playgoers. In the present instance, nothing but the actual specinus of the subject saved the piece from the last sentence of even Sadler's Wells' critical law, for in construction and detail, it is the veriest mass of incoherent rubbish that was ever shot upon the planes of common sense. The sketch we have made is in no one instance exaggerated. Our readers may therefore easily judge whether we speak truly or not. Punch at the New Strand, when Napoleon first appeared before the Grand Army after his return from Elba when Queen Victoria made her debut at the assemblage of her first parliament when Keane performed Othello at Drury Lane immediately after he had caused a certain friend of his to play the same part in the court of King's Bench the public mind was terribly agitated, and the public's legs instinctively carried them, on each occasion, to behold those great performers, when to give these circumstances their highest application. Punch, on Thursday last, came out in the regular drama. The excitement was no less intense. Boxes were besieged, the pit was choked up, and the gallery creaked with its celestial encumbrance. As the curtain drew up, there would have been a death-like silence but for the unparalleled sales that were taking place in apples, oranges, and ginger beer. Expectation was on tiptoe, as were the persons occupying that department of the theater called Standing Room. The looked-for moment came. The drop ascended, and the spectators beheld Mr. Dionysius Swivel, 
a pint of ale, and punch is theater. Tragedy. Seth the Aristotelian recipe for cooking up a serious drama, should have the probable, the marvelous, and the pathetic. In the tableau thus presented, the audience beheld the three conditions strictly complied with all at once. It was highly probable, as Mr. Swivel observed to the source of pipes, baka, and malt in other words, to the landlady he was addressing that his master, the showman, was unable to pay the score he had run up. It was marvelous that the proprietor of so popular a puppet as Punch should not have even the price of a pint of ale in his treasury. Lastly, that circumstance was deeply pathetic, for what so heart-rending as the exhibition of fallen greatness, of broken-down prosperity, of affluence regularly stumped and hard up. The fact island that Punch, his theater, and core dramatique, are in pawn for eight and ninepence. In the midst of this distress there appears a young gentleman, giving vent to passionate exclamations, while furiously buttoning up a tight shirt out. The object of his love is the daughter of the object of his hate. Mr. Snozzle, having previously made his bow, overhears him, and being the acting manager of Punch, and having a variety of plots for rescuing injured lovers from inextricable difficulties on hand, offers one of them to the lover, considerably over cost price, namely, for the puppet detaining eight and ninepence and a glass of brandy and water, the bargain being struck, the scene changes, to the happiness of being the possessor of, punch, Mr. Snozzle adds that of having a wonderful wife a lady of universal talents, who dances in spangled shoes, plays on the tambourine, and sings Whitechapel French like a native, this inestimable creature has already gone round the town on a singing, dancing, and cash collecting expedition, accompanied by the drum, mouth organ, and swivel, we now find her enchanting the flinty heart father, old Phelim, having been instrumental, by means of her vocal abilities, in drawing from him a declaration of amorous attachment and half a crown. She retires, to bury herself in the arms of her husband, and to eradicate the score, recorded in shock, at Mrs. Rummer's hotel. In the meantime Snozzle, having sold a plot, proceeds to fulfill the bargain by executing it. He enters with Punch's theater to treat old Phelim with a second exhibition, and his daughter with an elopement, for in the midst of the performance the young lady detects the big drum in the act of winking at her, and she soon discovers that Punch's orchestra is no other than her own lover. Phelim is delighted with the show, to which he is attentive enough to allow of the lovers escaping. He pursues them when it is too late, and having been so precipitate in his exit as to remember to forget to pay for his amusement, Swivel steals a handsome cage, parrot included. Good gracious, what a scene of confusion and confabulation next takes place. Phelim's first stage in pursuit is the public house, there he unwittingly persuades Mrs. Nozzle that her spouse is unfaithful that he it was who stole away the old man's daughter. Mrs. Nozzle raves, and threatens a divorce. Snozzle himself trembles he suspects the police are after him for being the receiver of stolen goods, instead of the deceiver of unsuspecting virtue. Swivel dreads being taken up for prigging the parrot, and a frightful catastrophe is only averted by the entrance of the truant lovers, who have performed the comedy of matrimony in a much shorter time than is allowed by the Act of Parliament. Mrs. Keeley played the tambourine, and the part of Snozzle Femme. This was more than acting, it was nature enriched with humor character broadly painted without a tinge of caricature. The solemnity of her countenance, while performing with her feet was a correct copy from the expression of self-approbation of the wonder how I do it so well always observable during the dances of the fair sex, her tones when singing were unerringly brought from the street, 
Her spangled dress was assuredly borrowed from Scouten's caravan, as a work of dramatic art, this performance island of its kind, most complete. Keeley's nozzle was quiet, rich, and philosophical, and Saunders made a duty of himself with unparalleled success. Frank Finch got his deserts in the hands of a Mr. Everett, for being a lover, no matter how awkward and ungainly an actor is made to represent him. O.H. Day and night. But this is wondrous strange, we believe. From the first, day was intended to mount, and wherefore it was made a mystery we know not. Doings at Doncaster, Sunday Times, poor coronation well may say. A mystery I mark, though jockeyed by the lightest day they tried to keep me dark. Punch, O are the London C-H-A-R-I-V-A-R-I, Volume 1, for the week ending October 2nd, 1841, The Tiptoes, a sketch. The wrong heads have been a considerable family ever since England was England. V-A-N-D-R-U-G-H, morning and evening, from every village within three or four miles of the metropolis, may be remarked a tide of young men wending diurnal way to and from their respective desks and counters in the city, preceded by a ripple of errand boys, and light porters, and followed by an ebb of plethoric elderly gentlemen in drab gaiters. Now these individuals compose for the most part that particular, yet indefinite class of people, who call themselves gentlemen, and are, 